In Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 2, it reads, get this going up here. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. And then over in chapter 2, it reads, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord. When God speaks, when God reveals himself to mankind, what should we do with that? When God talks, what should we do? Well, I think most of us all would agree and we would say that, well, we need to listen to what God has to say and then we need to act accordingly. We need to do what he has told us to do. The reason why is because God is a God that is to be feared. God is a God that is to be obeyed and to be feared and obeyed for everybody, by all people, for the consequences for failing to do that is terrifyingly severe. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has communicated to us his Father's will. There's a number of passages in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, that emphasize the role that the Son has played in speaking and revealing his Father's words. In John 5, 24, it says, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In that same chapter, you go on down just a few verses, he goes on to say, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son. Drop down to verse 30 of that same text. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. One more verse. Chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, verse 28. uh, Jesus went on to say as well, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know I am he. And I can do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things As the Father taught me. So, yes, in these last days, God has spoken. And God has spoken to us through His Son, and that Son has revealed to us His Father's will, His Father's words, His Father's authority. And so, in this revelation of the Son of God, in this revelation of Jesus Christ, how can we know? How can we understand what what we must do to please God? If God has spoken, I mean, he's spoken through his son, how can I know for sure what I am supposed to do, how I am supposed to live to please God? And that's what we're going to talk about today. The simple means of how can I read my Bible, how can I read the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to understand what I should or should not do when it comes to pleasing God. 
First of all, let's begin with this statement, and that is, the New Testament is a collection of God-inspired documents. When we talk about the Bible being, being consisted of Old Testament and New Testament, both testaments are divinely inspired, and so when you look at the New Testament, where we find the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be mindful of the fact that this is a collection, in a sense, a library of God-inspired documents. The words of our Lord, the words of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus is not simply a list of divine codes and divine reels. So you can get number one to whatever, 369. <laughs> you know, that's not what you find in the New Testament. That's not, that's not how you find God communicating to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, in the Old Testament, you've got the covenant law that God made with the nation of Israel, and that law was a compilation of codes and rules. And if you took the time, you could make a long list and put them all in, in uh, you could number them, categorize them in the way you want to do that. But the law of Moses that God gave to the nation of Israel was a list of codes, a list of rules that addressed moral, civil, and religious requirements. That's not the New Testament. The New Testament is not written that way. It's not written in the form of a list. Instead, God's laws and God's commandments in Christ are found throughout the reading of the New Testament. And the reason why is because Christ-chosen and Holy Spirit-guided apostles and prophets wrote the New Testament books. In Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle Paul is the writer. As the Spirit is guiding him to write these words to the saints and the church at Ephesus. And listen to what Paul, by the Spirit, has to say to Christians. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Very simply, Paul is saying, when you read what I wrote, you can know what I know. And you can understand what you're reading. But you've got to read it. You got to read. You get. You have to read what I've written, and he goes on to say. He said, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand. Verse five, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. What is now revealed in the New Testament, what is now revealed in the in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, was not fully known previously. But now, when you read what is written down, he says, you can know what I know. Because, he says, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Christ chosen, Holy Spirit guided, apostles and prophets have written down these documents. That's why these documents found in the New Testament are God-inspired. They're God-breathed. And he goes on to say in the same sentence in verse 6, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we have in the New Testament God-inspired documents because the Holy Spirit led 
apostles and prophets to write down the message of Christ. That's why Paul elsewhere could say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 32, where Paul said, let him recognize that the things which I write are the Lord's commandments. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 32. What I write are the Lord's commandments. But it's not a list. You know, it's not like 1 through 10 or 1 through, you know, 33 here. and you know, No, it's not a list of codes. It's not a list of rules. But there in the writings, you will find God's laws, God's rules that pertain to living and serving Jesus Christ. The New Testament is actually a compilation of a, diff- a variety of books or writings. You've got bi- biographical accounts, and that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are biographical in their style of writing. And then you've got an historical record found in the book of Acts, which is basically a history of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, you know, the spread of Christianity and the establishment of churches of Christ throughout the world at that time. Then you've got the instructional letters, which are all the epistles, the majority of the New Testament, are all these epistles that are written to different churches or different individuals. And then last but not least, you've got a letter of prophecy, and that's the book of Revelation. So that's the New Testament. And in all of that writing, all of this is God-inspired, because these are apostles and prophets that are led by the Spirit. In them, you find God's will. You find what God expects of you and me. How we should live and how we should worship God to please him. But that means there's going to be some work on our part. There's going to have to be some effort on our part. If I'm, if I'm going to learn you know, what the gospel of Christ is, if I'm going to learn what God's will is for me to do by reading these inspired works, then I've got to read them and I've got to seek to comprehend them as I read. And so I'm going to have to test the text. I'm going to have to test the context with questions, very basic questions. When you're reading something that's biographical, something that's historical, something that's instructional, I'm going to have to read these writings with some very basic questions that are going to help me understand how, how does it apply to me? Yeah. Should I do this or should, should I not do this? So I've got to start with, well, who is speaking? Who's doing the talking right here? For example, in Matthew chapter 4, you have this inspired record, inspired quotation that says, all the things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's in the Bible, so that's what you need to do. Right? Who said that? Someone answer it. I'm going to have well, audience participation today. Satan, right. Are you, supposed to, are you supposed to follow Satan? No, no. You know, so you need to ask, who said this? This is a statement that uh, you know, Satan said in the temptation of Jesus Christ. So clearly, no, we're not to listen and follow what Satan says. But you need to ask, who, who's talking here? Who is speaking? But then you compare that to an, another statement found in John 4. Excuse me, John 4 here where it says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Who said that? Jesus. You can, you can yell it out. First, right here at the beginning, you have some you know, audience participation. Jesus says this. So that, that's important, isn't it? 
It's, it, you know, Jesus saying, that, okay, this is, this is God's character, this is God's nature, and so therefore, we understand the nature of God determines the manner of worship. So this, this is significant because of who said it. But not only do we need to ask who is doing the talking, who is doing the speaking, but also you need to ask a second question, whom is being addressed? So let me go, who, who is being addressed? In John 9, you know, well, is it talking to one person? Is it talking to a broader, broader audience? But actually, in John 9, verse 11, you actually have Jesus t- saying, go to Siloam and wash. Jesus said that. Are you supposed to go do that? Are you supposed to go to Siloam and wash? No. Because based on the context here of who is being addressed, this is the instruction that Jesus gives to the man that was born blind. Remember, he spit and made mud out of his own spit and wiped it on the guy's eyes. And he said, okay, now go to Siloam and wash. Yeah. Now, do I need to know that story? Yes, that, that whole story is a revelation of Jesus Christ. But am I supposed to, do I have to go to Siloam and wash? My eyes off to be pleased God? Well, no. That, that doesn't apply. That's a very specific, you know, applying to one person in the context of that passage. But elsewhere, for example, in Matthew 12, Matthew 12, in verse 50, you have another statement where Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother, and he is my, she is my sister, and she is my mother. The context is a time when Jesus is busy teaching. His family's worried about him. He's not even taking time to eat. And they've come, and they're, they're concerned, and they're at the door. They want to talk to Jesus. And he's told, hey, your mom's out there waiting on you. And he turns to the audience, and he says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's my family. Now, I don't have to go to Salome. And wash my eyes to please God. But this statement is significant because he's not just talking to one person. You know, he's talking to a broader audience. He's talking to the crowds here. And he says, whoever. And, yet, and here we are about 2,000 years later and we fall within that description of whoever. So there's application to that one for us today. A third question that we need to ask, and that is, what is the hearer being told? Does it have a far-reaching application beyond the immediate context? Is, is there an application beyond the context that also applies to me today? I need to know, well, you know, who's talking, who, who is he talking to, and what, what are they told? Well, in Luke 17, verse 14... Jesus is speaking there, and he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. This is a command of Jesus. Jesus commanded, go and show yourselves to the priest. But once again, who is he talking to? He's talking to to ten lepers. He's just healed from leprosy, and according to the law of Mo- Moses, lep- you know, the healing of leprosy had to be confirmed by the priest you know, who was serving at the time. 
And so Jesus said, okay, I've healed you. Now, now you guys need to go do what the law says you're supposed to do as a Jew. Yeah. But do we have to go you know, show ourselves to the priest? No. That has a very specific application there you know, for those individuals. But in John 8, in John 8, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Here, he's not just talking about you know, a specific situation, you know, a specific people, but talking to a crowd, particularly focusing in that crowd, believing Jews. Jews have begun to believe in Jesus Christ, and he turns to that, that audience, and he particularly says to them, you know, in a very applicable way, he says, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Believing alone is not enough. You're going to have to continue in my word, in my teaching. So you know, who's doing the talking? Who's being talk, who, who is he talking to? You know, what are they told specifically to do there? And then also, fourth, you know, the question is, okay, what is the lesson that's being taught? You know, does the lesson apply today? Or... Are there kind of specific instructions that are limited you know, to that person in that circumstance? That was the case with the blind man. And that was the case with the ten lepers. There were instructions that were limited to those people in the context of what was going on. But is there, is there a lesson that is far, far more recent? We need to ask that. And then I think the Sermon on the Mount illustrates that well. That you've got here in Matthew chapter 5... Three chapters that are a very condensed version of what righteousness before God is all about. That's what's from, you know, it's about kingdom righteousness. If we want to be citizens of the everlasting spiritual heavenly kingdom of Christ and of God, there's a certain kind of righteousness that we have to cultivate. And, they will, and this, will, this will involve probably repentance on our part because there are going to be some changes we're going to have to make. But you think about that idea. Jesus teaching here a large crowd, an audience of people, and he's, he's basically telling them this is the kind of righteousness you need to live if you're going to please God. It has to be a righteousness that's not based upon man's standards. It has to be a righteousness that's not based upon simply a, a religious norm that doesn't you know, meet true righteousness. And so Jesus has several things to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Every verse is just loaded with lessons to learn from. And I want to just kind of give us a, a quick kind of feel of the idea of, okay, here is an audience being spoken about righteousness before God and how this is how it's going to be manifested in your life. And every aspect of your life is going to be touched and impacted by it. For example, in Matthew 5, verse 8 and 9, you've got the portion that we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes of Christ. And he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then you drop down you know, to verse 20. Where he continues to say, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that was the norm. That was the norm of the day. Pharisaical righteousness, scribal righteousness. He says, unless it surpasses that kind of standard, he says, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the righteousness that Jesus is teaching here is a righteousness that surpasses what even in the day of the first century among the Jews is called upon. In verse 27 and 28, he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. The Jews knew that. But he goes on to say, but I say to you, I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See the kind of righteousness that God is challenging us to measure up to? In the same, in the same chapter, you know, drop down to verse you know, 32, he says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of fornication, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's the kind of righteousness that's being uplifted here. You know, look, look down in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about pleasing people. It's about pleasing God and living righteously in a way that honors him. Same chapter of chapter 6. You know, look, look in verse 20 and 21. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves, you know, you know, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. See all the lessons of righteousness here? I mean, it's just loaded. Verse 12 of chapter 7, you know, in everything, treat people the same way you want to be treated. For this, the law, that's what we call the golden rule. Where did it originate? It originates in the righteousness of God, the very character of God. Look at the last verse, verse 24 I'm going to mention. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, contained in all the writings of the New Testament, chosen men of Christ, Holy Spirit-guided men in Christ, communicated God's will of how we should live and how we should worship him. But what's kind of interesting is this very simple fact, and that is the Spirit has communicated to you and me in the same way that you and I communicate. The ways that God communicates his authority, his will to us, is the same way that you and I communicate our wills to one another. Think about this. From where or from whom have we derived our abilities to communicate? Where, does, you know, where, does, where do you get the ability to communicate? Where did it come from? It comes from our creator. And if God created us the ability to communicate, and, this is, and we communicate a certain way, should we be surprised that God's going to communicate to us the same way that we communicate with one another? They shouldn't. The Father, Son, and the Spirit have not left, have not left us in, you know, alone in such a way that we cannot come to know what he wants us to do. We mentioned in Hebrews 1-2 where God in these last days has spoken to us in his son. That son is described in John chapter 1 as the word that was with God and was with God and has come down and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and it is in, it is in that word, Jesus Christ, that truth and grace have made accessible to us. 
And it is Jesus who promised the apostles in John 16, verse 13. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm going I'm to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of truth, and he's going to guide you into all truth. So how, how did he communicate all of that to us so we can know what we are supposed to do? Yes, I need to, who's talking? Who is he talking to? What was he told? Does it, you know, what's the lesson for me today? All those are very practical questions. So how does he communicate to us you know, the things that we need to do? Well, in ways that you and I communicate. He either tells us, he either shows us, or he implies something to us. That's how you communicate. If you want to get somebody to do something, how are you? Try to do it without telling them. Try to do it without showing them. And try to do it without implying anything to them. Can you do it? You can't. You can't get anybody to do anything, to do what you want, what your will is, if you, if you don't tell them, show them, or imply it. And that's exactly what God has done. He tells us what he wants or how he wants to do. And so that you find, as you read your New Testament, you're going to find direct statements, orders, presets, commandments. But also there are other times he will show you something. He'll show you what he wants or how he wants to do, do it. And so he'll illustrate it. He'll give you an example. He'll, 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 he'll reveal an approved practice. See, you know, so he's showing you how to do it. Or, and then finally, he will imply things. He will he'll imply what you know, he expects for you to get by what he said or shown you. And what I mean, it, it, that's the application. Sometimes the application is implied. That is, it's not always expressly stated and not always specifically exemplified, but yet you have to think on what has been said. You have to logically conclude, oh, now I get it. That's the point. And that's how we communicate to each other. And that's how God has communicated to us his will to us. Let me give you this example very quickly that illustrates that. In Acts chapter 10, if you will, if you have your Bibles, in Acts chapter 10, we're just going to kind of go through this. not going to read the text. But in Acts chapter 10, God is communicating his will to the apostle Peter. And he's communicating his will to the apostle Peter regarding, regarding him taking the gospel to the world. That is, he is going to you know, tell all kinds of people about Jesus Christ. Peter hasn't done that yet. He's only preached to the Jews at this point. So God is going to communicate his will to Peter about how I intend for you to take the gospel to everybody, not just to one group of people. And so I want you to kind of note the process that takes place here. Now, the apostle Peter was a Jew. He was a Hebrew. And he is converted out of Judaism to Christ. But Jews did not associate with Gentiles because the law of Moses, the law of Moses warned uh, God's people not to interact with people of idolatry. And so there is this kind of you know, expected and practiced disassociation because of warnings of God in the Old Testament to his people about associating, interacting with the people of idolatry and how that could lead them astray. And so that's why Jews did not you know, interact, make friends with Gentiles. 
Now, they may do some business. You know, there may be a business transaction that you have to engage in, but that, that was it. You, know, you didn't invite them to your home. You didn't go to their home. And so the account in chapter 10 of Acts is powerful because it begins with God showing Peter a vision. He illustrated it by a vision, and it is a dream about this great sheet coming down to heaven, and inside that sheet are all kinds of animals, particularly unclean animals, that the law of Moses said you can't eat. And in the vision, so you got this vision, comes down, you know, Peter sees this in his dream, and in the vision, the vision tells, him, tells Peter, hey, Peter, you need to get up and kill and eat this, this meat. And Peter refuses that three times, and then the vision goes away. He's told to do something that the law of Moses said he shouldn't have done. But he's also said what God cleanses is not to be considered unclean anymore. If God has cleansed it, it may have been unclean then, but if God says it's not now, then it's not now. He basically tells them that through the vision. He shows them this 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 dream. Almost immediately after that vision ends, the Holy Spirit then directly tells Peter, there are three guys at your door. And he says, and you need to go with them. And these three men are Gentiles. He says, there's three men knocking at your door and you need to go with them and not ask any questions. Go without doubting. So God has shown him a dream about what is clean and unclean and no longer unclean. And then he's told specifically, go with these three men. Yeah. And don't ask them questions or don't go with doubting me. To the point when you get to Acts chapter 10, you look there in verse 28 and 29. It is at this point that Peter, that Peter logically concludes, he infers by what has been implied to him previously. Okay, he's now at the house, he's at the door of a man named Cornelius, a household that would have been filled with Gentiles. He was a Roman soldier, a Roman commander who is a believer in Jehovah God, and God is providing a way that this commander can hear the gospel. And in, in verse 28, this is what Peter's response when the doors opened up, and there's Cornelius. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. You know what the law of the Jews is. You know this. But then he goes on to say, and yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. And then Cornelius begins to explain that. The vision that, that uh, Paul, uh, Peter saw 
And the instruction, the specific instruction that he was given in both of those, neither of those specifically say this is all about Gentiles. No, you know, it, it doesn't say anything about that. But Peter concludes correctly. He was shown something, he was told something, he was made the proper application. He said, oh, now I get it. Gentiles are not unclean, so therefore I can interact with them and I can talk to them and I can tell them about Jesus. Are they sinners that need saving? Yes, they're still sinners. But they're not people that are not worthy to hear of Jesus Christ. There's an example of God communicating his will through the apostle to get the lesson across that God intended to be learned from the start. But it took Peter a while to learn it. God has communicated the same way to us throughout the New Testament. He tells us, he shows us, and he implies us lessons that need to be, impl- that need to be applied. So let's end with this question as we you know, wrap it up. And that is, what must we do to be forgiven? You know, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to you know, seek and you know, save those who are separated from God. So what must we do to be forgiven? In Matthew chapter 20, 28, in the Great Commission of Matthew... Jesus gave the command to say, go and make disciples of all nations. It was God's intention all along that all people have access to salvation. He says, okay, go make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a command. Jesus is telling us what they need to do and what they need to teach people to do so they can do what they're told to do to be forgiven. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, no, excuse me, go back. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you see the apostles actually carrying out that great commission in Jerusalem. They convict hearts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they have just crucified their Savior. And they ask, what must we do? And they're told what they needed to do. These people who have been convicted by the truth and therefore are now believers are told, you need to repent And you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're being told what Jesus told them to tell others to do. To be forgiven and to be made right with God. And then you have even Paul who tells about his own conversion. He wasn't always a Christian. He was once a persecutor, an opponent of Christ. But he was convicted by the truth. And when he was told what he needed to do to be saved, he did it. A man by the name of Ananias was sent to him and tells him, you know, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It is through the obedient act of faith of baptism that we call on the name of Jesus to save us. And when we do that, it is through God's grace and our faith that our sins are now washed away. And that's exactly what people did back in Acts chapter 2, 
in verse you know, 41. But he says, those that gladly received the word you know, were baptized. So those who heard were able to understand for themselves and able to receive the message and believe it for themselves. Those individuals made the choice to be baptized into Jesus Christ to wash away their sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. We're told, we're shown, and it's implied what we must do to be saved. If you're not a Christian, but you believe Jesus to be the Christ, without faith it's impossible to please God. To go through any of this without faith, it would be in vain. No, you must believe that God is. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You must believe that he died on Calvary's cross and he rose on the third day. But if you believe that, but you've not rendered obedience to the, to the call of Christ, to the call of the gospel, we want to encourage you to do that today. To make that decision, to make that commitment, to repent of sin, confess your faith before others, and be baptized into Christ. Whatever your spiritual need may be, we invite you, encourage you, please come forward while we now stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>